this in some regard is a re-record of the uh, <laughs> the ill-fated last recording with uh, with Jeffrey, Bruce Damer and, and myself. Um, and I wanted to bring up some of the topics that we did discuss last time with Jeffrey, just because we've both had a chance to uh, to think more on them. In particular, um, the ACL conference gliders on spheres and and these kind of things. I mean. Because you didn't have the opportunity here because it wasn't recorded, do you want to give some introduction to the ACL conference again, please? Oh, um, well, uh, I can't say much about the conference itself because I've just started learning about it, but um, I will be doing a workshop uh, there. It's in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, and it's in um, December. Um, and what I'll be talking about is uh, sort of looking at artificialized simulations on spheres and considering... Um, you know, what's the difference between running an A-life simulation on a sphere versus a flat surface or, or some other topology with particular interest in the biosphere and what kinds of dynamics occur on the biosphere um, because it's a sphere. And I, I don't actually have answers yet. I just have these questions, and I think that uh, studying the sphere-hood of our planet in terms of Artificial life simulations is could be an inter interesting topic, and as I've uh, discussed with Gerald a little bit and with you last time, running uh, cellular automata, which are fairly predictable, well-behaved models on a sphere using the geodesic grid, um, is kind of one way to look at this issue, um, you know, mathematically. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And in terms of the broader kind of surveying of, of different perspectives, I mean, you start off with um, gliders. Certainly when you were on last time, we discussed intelligent agents um, and particularly the idea of uh, agent navigation over a sphere versus agent navigation over a plane. Right. So, General, for the, for the listeners, what, what's your particular perspective with regards to spheres of artificial life simulation? Well, that's, uh, it's core to what I'm doing, actually, uh, coincidentally. And I, I've been absolutely fascinated with, uh, with geodesic spheres for the longest time. Um, my current uh, model of the universe for Darwin at home is spherical. Uh, it's, it's, to me, it makes, uh, makes perfect sense because it's uh, two-dimensional, so it's sort of manageable. I can zoom down to like the planet's surface and cruise around. But um, at the same time... You're sort of, uh, you, you've got your fate sealed. I mean, you're going to encounter others. If there's others on the sphere you'll, uh, and you're wandering around, you'll eventually get to them. <laughs> and, and actually, the, the, the way I'm doing it right now, code-wise, is, is uh, the, the universe is divided into triangles, which is interesting because the surface of a sphere is, of course, dividable into triangles. Um, by the way, I... Was was talking with uh, with Jeffrey about uh, about the sphere the other day and about uh, running life on it, you know, like the, um, the cellular automaton. And uh, a number of years ago, I built exactly that. I mentioned that, and I haven't quite uh, dug up that code and published it again. But uh, um, I did exactly that with an OpenGL sphere with uh, little hexagonal patches. And uh, the, one of the most interesting things to keep in mind with this sphere is that, like, it's two-dimensional. It's uh, it's closed, so it's a, it's a finite two-dimensional universe. Um, but also, um, it's got sort of errors in it in a way. I mean, you can't you can't put a regular pattern on it. There are uh, hexagons everywhere except for twelve points. 
So there, there are 12 places where you just can't have a hexagon. You have to break the rules and, and have a pentagon. And those are basically the corners of, of the sphere, the corners of the icosahedron. So uh, that has a really Im- interesting impact on a cellular automaton because, you know, the, what we're used to is sort of the, uh, the, the plain old square scenario on, a, on an infinite to the surface. Whereas on the sphere, you've got these corners in a way, and they have a dramatic effect because at least if you use the rules uh, similar to, to Conway's life, because it depends on how many neighbors are alive and how many are not. And there are some anomalies in, there are 12 anomalies of, uh, of, of these patches because they've got five neighbors instead of six. So it, uh, it causes the, the patterns that appear are a consequence of these corners, which is fascinating. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's exactly the, the, the question that I've been exploring. And in fact, um, G- Gerald, you're talking about using a, an icosahedral geodesic, but there are, of course, other ways to make geodesics. So, for instance, if you use a cube, which I think is something that you had done, Tom. It's, it's my favorite method because you know, instead of having uh, 12, you only have eight. <laughs> it, it's, it's, less, uh, it's less accurate, though, because uh, as uh, Fuller showed way back when, uh, when he created his uh, map of the world where all the land masses are connected uh, by virtue of slicing up the surface in triangles and then doing some extra little ex- uh, sub-slicing. But, um, the, the point is, you know, you can... Uh, you can. Uh, oh, I guess I'm not quite awake yet. Um, so I, I, I can express it. Um, the, the, these points, these anomalous points, express the curvature of the sphere. In the case of an icosahedral geodesic, you've got 12, and the difference is only uh, between hexagonal and pentagonal uh, cells. Whereas in the cube, uh, you've got triangular. Uh, cells at the eight corners, which is a, a tighter curvature, so it's more anomalous. If you go all the way down to a tetrahedron, uh, if you've ever d- done a geodesic on a tetrahedron, you've got very mm-hmm. exaggerated points of curvature. And if you go all the way down to uh, the way the Mercator projection is, is, is projected, where you've got a north and south pole, the north and south pole are extremely distorted regions. So you can just think of it as how you distribute the curvature of the grid on the sphere. Yeah, and you could also say that the uh, icosahedron is the best possible representation because it involves the least distortion when you squeeze it flat. Correct, yeah. Yes, I mean, my my perspective with regards to the cube was always that the underlying surface um, that I was mapping to had a resolution as well, and the cube was always... Uh, where a unit on the cube was equal to a fractional unit of what I was mapping down onto in in terms of just having vast resolutions. So particularly um, because the um, Noble 8 landscape algorithms are really um, fundamentally fractal in terms of the way that they're generated, um, the idea of these points um, really is, is immaterial in terms of the fractal nature of the way the landscapes are generated and certainly for my purposes moving that fractal to anything other than uh, uh, you know square coordinates in some regards made it very difficult to actually replicate that kind of fractal behaviour. I remember Gerald when you were originally talking about spheres I thought quite a bit uh, about how you would take some of these fractal uh, behaviours to um, 
uh, you know, the, the, the various mappings that we've described. Um, in terms of um, in terms of the, the hexagons and the, these kind of things, are the are the fractal mappings that you know of in order to create realistic landscapes? Uh, I haven't looked that up, um, but it's it, it's really interesting the difference between uh, the, the icosahedral approach and and the cubic approach. It's something to really look into, uh, maybe for people in the audience as well, because. Um, uh, the more you play around with spheres, the more you realize that it it is sort of uh, straightforward. You know, you, you start to learn the rules and get an appreciation for it fairly quickly. But at the same time, you realize that most of the world is crippled with respect to understanding how the sphere, uh, the icosahedral sphere works, because we just we just don't grow up with hexagons and pentagons making up a circle. Uh, surface, excuse me. The the um, we just we're, we're just not used to reasoning in that way, and it's really interesting when you when you play around with the sphere and discover that that it is actually uh, frustratingly difficult to to really work with it because we're just not accustomed to it. We don't we don't get taught this in school. Right. That's we, one have, of the, we have to go uh, go through the Buckminster Fuller uh, phases of discovery. Uh, and kind of reach reach that same level. Uh, actually, can I just make what, one point? Um, we were talking about gliders. Uh, I did make one discovery that in some of the glider-rich uh, cellular automata that I discovered, some of them, when they pass over these points, they they actually survive quite well. And this is this is sort of the test that I that I want to do is that there are certain kinds of CA that are robust upon these. Um, kind of discontinuities. Uh, and so looking at CA in terms of robustness uh, over discontinuities in the, in the grid is, is an interesting thing. Some of the, occasionally a glider will fall apart or split into two gliders in these, in these points, uh, but mostly they would just pass right through and kind of reassemble themselves, which was kind of cool to see. Well, there's um, there's a whole exploration of different kinds of automata in uh, uh, Wolfram's A New Kind of Science. That he uh, he starts with the, the completely digital ones, but eventually goes to uh, you know floating points and uh, whatever else to make cellular automaton as uh, automata as well. And I can imagine if you do something that's uh, sort of less discreet, that you will uh, you'll be able to create things that. Uh, that shouldn't necessarily notice that they're on one of these corners, but then you're sort of you're you're overriding the uh, the you know the, the the strangeness of the sphere. By the way, uh, there's uh, I created a long time ago. I went through all the effort to create a, a spherical data structure, and I'm using it now extensively still in in all sorts of places. And what I uh, what I do is I, I generate every dot of a geodesic sphere uh, arbitrarily detailed. So I'm able to do that. It just you know adjusts the coordinates to uh, push them out to be actually spherical in form. But every uh, vertex has uh, has its coordinates. And I'm also in this uh, in this object I've made a connection um, so you can actually navigate around from one from one patch to at the neighbor patches. Oh. All the connections are made, so that makes it really easy to do, cool. uh, you know, things that travel around, and uh, you know, it's lovely to be able to generate them arbitrarily large. I've been using them for any number of things in the last while. I use them for 
creating really nice-looking OpenGL spheres, nicer than the sort of uh, standard sphere, which is, a, in a sense, a Mercator sort of, uh, you know, with the, the, the two poles having them really squeezed like a, mm-hmm. like, like a sphincter, I guess. <laughs> um, and so this, this... And also I've used it to as a sort of a, a scaffolding in which to build spherical tensegrities. So basically this, uh, I, I create a sphere and then uh, make the, uh, uh, create the, the tensegrity and then toss the sphere, throw it away. Mm. But in terms of the, I mean, this is very much kind of the, um, you know, the, uh, the developer god looking down on the sphere. In terms of the intelligent agent on the sphere, uh, Gerald, is this library able to give meaningful navigation for them as well? Yeah, it was actually built precisely for that, so that you could uh, create things that have the point of view of being on the surface, because the way it works is there's not even, I mean, that, this is one of the things here, just to let your mind wander a little bit about this uh, on the sphere and uh, avoid the, um, the sort of prejudice of having it rotate, which gives it poles. You know, suppose it's not rotating, so it doesn't have poles which is uh, like the Darwin and Home model currently, if you're on the surface, there's no such thing as north or south. There, there really is no such thing as direction, uh, which is interesting. You know, it doesn't really matter which direction you go because you're not heading towards or away from any pole or anything. Any, uh, every, every one of these 12 corners is identical. So that's really the only way you can uh, locate yourself. So the way I built this library to work is you have two patches, in in mind when you navigate and in the case when you're standing on a hexagon you can go straight ahead but if you're on a pentagon you can't go straight ahead you can go slightly to the left slightly to the right or backwards mm. but but you can't necess- you can't go across uh, you can't go straight ahead so in effect you know you can navigate around but you have to be ready with two sets of rules one for when you're in hexagon land and one for when you accidentally step on a, on a pentagonal corner because you've got, you know, a different number of neighbors. So, mm. uh, but you're moving of, in quanta. You're moving in quanta over individual hexes or when you're on a uh, pentagonal one into another hex or potentially into from a hex into a pentagon. I mean, this is what you're saying. These are, these are discrete steps. They're like, you know... Uh, um, uh, patches on on a chessboard only they're tri- or they're uh, hexagonal and pentagonal and they have different numbers of neighbors so yeah they're they're discrete patches. So the chat room is asking me to introduce you both. We have on the call Gerald De Jong and Jeffrey Ventrella. We also have in the chat room Eric Burton, Dick Gordon, and William R. Buckley. So and a number of other folk as well. So obviously Talkshow is showing us that folks who want to participate can quite actively. Thank you very much to the folks in the chat room. And if you have any questions, please, um, you know, please uh, type them in and I'll be sure to ask them. Just before we move on, um, Gerald in particular, I mean, have you looked at Wolfram Alpha in the past week? Uh, no, I've been reading the odd thing about it here and there. Um, there are some important things to keep in mind when you're looking at Wolfram Alpha because it's it's not like a Google killer, it's it's a completely different story, and uh, the source of the information and what you can do with the results. There are some interesting rules set up about that. I mean, they they have a different sort of uh, Wolfram has a very different corporate attitude than Google does, for example. So look at the fine print. Mm. Have you been using it, Jeffrey? No, I just caught a little bit of the Wolfram uh, on the video, um, not enough to to get a good grok of it. 
so I'm, I'm waiting to hear more. My own view is it's very much like an almanac. So rather than being a, a standard search, you get kind of almanac entries um, mm. with regards to names and dates and these kind of things. And my real frustration is the, um, I guess the great power that I found when I used Mathematica, I used Mathematica when I was at university, was its ability to kind of move you in different directions. I mean, ultimately, in some regard, analogous to Wikipedia, when you look something up and you see another link in the Wikipedia thing and you move all, you know, all around Wikipedia with regards to just the uh, active text links. But I mean, so something analogous that goes on with Mathematica in terms of actually exploring various mathematical spaces, and certainly that was my hope with regards to Wolfram Alpha. I'm, I'm not quite as heavily a Wolfram devotee as, as Gerald is, um, but certainly I had uh, very high expectations, and as it is currently, I do understand that it's very early days. Um, but I was a bit frustrated with the very the very basic nature of the stuff that I could do with it, um, and certainly this was something that I think Rudolf Pinnikoff uh, mentioned in a bias live recently um, that we should be following because there are there are underlying components that have some uh, van into artificial life in some regards. So I was interested in hearing uh, both your ideas with regards to this. <laughs> 